pray. Father, open our hearts and our minds to receive from your word. Encourage and equip us in all areas of life to live kingdom first, every day of every week of every year for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I almost said, just talk amongst yourselves while I set up, but with this group, you'd never stop talking, so you can say that. There is a letter floating around the internet. It's not real. It was made up, but I want to read you a portion of it. It comes from the Jordan Management Consultants, and it says, Dear Sir, Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men that you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but have also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. As part of our service, we make some general comments for your guidance, much as an auditor will include some general statements. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept we would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. I have one thing I want to do this morning. I want to talk about those 12 guys. I want to help you get to know these 12 guys. And in doing so, you can decide whether this fictitious letter is accurate, that maybe Jesus should have looked for some other guys, that when they go through the battery of tests, it is clear they are not qualified for what he is calling them to, and maybe he could have found some better ones. So open your Bible, if you would, to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. All right, so here's the picture. Jesus goes away by himself. He goes up on a mountain, and he prays all night. He comes down from the mountain. He calls the disciples, and there's a group of them probably at least as large as this room. And then he picks 12 of them. Those are the 12 that I want to get to know this morning. So this is going to be a different kind of message. I don't have like three points and three illustrations and an opening and a closing. I, okay, this is going to be like some stories. I want you to know the disciples. I think there's something very significant in understanding 
these 12. All right? So, number one. That'll come in later. We'll just get that out of the way. Simon, whom he named Peter. All right, Simon Peter. This is the guy that we know the most about. Of all the disciples, we know the most about Simon Peter. He is talked about the most. He does the most things. He goes in every single gospel and in the book of Acts. There's a lot of information. I'm going to give you a rundown on some of the things. All right? Number one, he's an early disciple. Uh, he's one of the first ones that's called. Um, probably that fishing episode happened more than once. We've also got some stuff in John. Um, Jesus approached him early. He was a fisherman. He was likely strong, probably had good endurance to do what they do, to go out on the water all night long and fish, to haul the nets in. He's a big, strong guy. Um, he is married, and it is very likely based on what Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 9, that not only was he married, but that he remained married, probably took a hiatus or at least was away from his wife for a season while he was with Jesus, as long as three years. But after the resurrection, she went with him. And the church supported both of them. He um, is called the Rock, what a name, um, The Rock. Um, but that is what, I mean, this guy is, he is strong and he seems to be a natural leader. Um, in one of the scenes where they're, they're fishing all night and they don't catch anything, and then Jesus teaches from the boat, and at the end of that, you've got Peter and you've got guys that work for him and they're all just exhausted because they've been doing this all night. And then Jesus, who's not a fisherman, says, Put out again. Let's go out there and fish some more. Could you imagine if you're Peter in that moment and you've got to tell these guys, I know, he's a rabbi and he's telling us to go do this again. But he does it and nobody seems to like question it. After the resurrection, when all the disciples are freaked out, they're scared, they're lost, they don't know what to do, and Peter goes, I'm going to go fishing. Guess what a bunch of the other ones do? They follow. I mean, this guy seems to be a very natural leader, right? Um, the thing that comes across with Peter maybe the most is that he is very passionate and sometimes seems to not think about what he's doing, but just acts. I've heard it said he has foot and mouth disease. He's constantly footing, putting his foot in his mouth. Um, and, and you know what? I think that ignores the complexity of this particular person. I would argue there is a whole lot more to Peter, and especially because that particular characterization, it usually comes from the denial section, where Peter says, I will not deny you no matter what, and Jesus goes, no, you're going to. Before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. And everybody else is like, we're not going to deny you either. And then Peter says, even if everybody denies you, I won't. Wow, I mean, Peter, and then you do it. However, there's a scene in the Gospel of John where they come to arrest Jesus, and Peter, a fisherman, pulls a sword, jumps in front of Jesus, 
to take on a band of soldiers. Who does that? A guy who seriously means, I will not deny you. The denials come after Jesus says, no. Should I not take the cup the Father has for me? And it's as if in that moment, there's a breaking of Peter. Like he had all the the zeal and the passion and, and the faith, but he needed some direction. And it seemed, because it's after that moment that Peter then gets scared and he begins following in the shadows and he denies and he goes and he weeps. And after the resurrection, he's not sure what to do. And so he just goes back to fishing. Peter was a very strong individual, a natural leader, somebody who had the kind of faith that you would want, and yet he still needed some breaking. That's Peter. The next one that is mentioned is Andrew, and it's interesting. Andrew, his brother, says the text. So we do know something about Andrew, not a ton, not definitely as much as Peter, but we know some things about him. He is Peter's younger brother, and I would make the argument that Peter would have been the quarterback of the team, the president of the school. He was charismatic, he was filled with passion, and that Andrew grew up in his shadow. Even the way he's named, it's, it's, it's Peter's brother is Andrew. Um, and, and what you see of Andrew throughout the text kind of presents this picture, and I'm going to go through a couple of the episodes, of a, a reserved, um, probably spiritual kind of guy. He was a disciple of John the Baptist. I mean, we see him going, he's with John, then he goes to be with Jesus. Um, this isn't like he's just a fisherman. Like, spirituality, religion, it means something to Andrew. But when we meet him, he learns about Jesus, and the first thing he does is he brings Jesus to meet somebody else. Later on, when they have been with Jesus for a while, they're in a particular place out away from towns. Thousands of people are following Jesus, and they're getting to the end of the day, and Jesus says, we got to feed these people. And it's Andrew who goes, well, here's a little boy, and he's got some fish and some loaves of bread. And I can picture, and and we'll make it through some of the disciples, you will too, I can picture some of the disciples either chuckling, like, are you serious, Andrew? It's a little boy with some bread and fish. Like, look out there. Um, But that's Andrew. Like, here's this little boy, he's got some bread and fish. I don't know what you can do with it, but this is what I've got. Later on, another scene where somebody comes and says, people are looking for Jesus. And Andrew's like, okay, well, let's take him to Jesus. He seems this kind of quiet, reserved, faithful, um, religious kind of guy that just wants to serve. And then we come to these guys. And James and John. Now, Luke doesn't give us much. But what we know about James and John is they are the sons of Zebedee. These guys also come early. They are partners in fishing with Peter and Andrew. They've got some kind of business deal together. But James and John are likely a little more wealthy. Um, Mark mentions they have servants. Not just hired hands, they have servants. 
And so their business side of it may be more, uh, more successful than what Peter and Andrew have. Um, they get the name from Jesus, Sons of Thunder. I mean, I don't know, I think of Thor when I, when I hear that. I mean, whoever it is, these guys, I just, they're fishermen, they're brothers, they're probably big guys. Like, these are the sons of thunder. And then I start thinking about poor Andrew. Right, here's the other thing you need to know. The first four, they're a group. They do a few things together, and you've got Peter, and you've got James, and you've got John, and then you've got Andrew. And I especially Andrew, like, did, did you make a mistake? Like, I don't know if this is the best group for me. James and John, these big sons of thunder kind of guys. Now, there's something really special about these two. They're cousins of Jesus. They're family. And if you start thinking through that, and you think about a few of the instances with them, like they grew up, now most of these guys probably knew each other to some degree growing up. Okay? They, they live in small villages and most of them know one another, especially within Galilee. But these guys in particular, as cousins, Salome is the aunt of Jesus. So as they are growing up, and all of this stuff is going on, and they're watching him, and suddenly they're following him, and here's two weird scenes. I want to share them with you, but I want to give you the scenes in light of if this is family. One weird scene is where Salome comes to Jesus, like seemingly out of the blue, and goes, hey, I would like my sons to sit at your right and your left when you come in your kingdom. That is just a weird, like, how audacious do you have to be to like, like, what is happening? But I want you to reframe that. If they all grew up together, family is as important as it is, and an aunt is coming to her nephew and saying, of all the ones you've chosen, these are family. And by the way, and I'm just adding this part, you picked somebody to lead the 12 that wasn't family. Let's make this right. And put my sons at your right and your left hand. And then you have this other really even more weird scene where they're going through a town and like they don't believe in Jesus in the town. And so when they get through it, James and John come up and they go, would you like us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? And I mean, you just see Jesus going, what the? And I can't say, like, are you serious? Have you been with me at all? Why would I ever want to do that? But if you're the cousins and you're showing your loyalty and, I'm going to really conjecture here, you're setting yourselves up to sit at the right and left hand. What better way to show your loyalty than to say, boy, they rejected you. We'll show them. We're completely on your side. The whole family dynamic creates something weird within all of this. And then you get to the cross. Jesus is dying, and he sees Mary and John and he says, behold, woman, your son. Oh, wait a minute. That's, that's her nephew. He's a disciple. Who better to take care of his mom? 
than one who understands. Because at this point, most of Jesus' family is not following. So you've just given your mom into the care of a relative who's also a disciple. Uh, John is also the one called the beloved disciple in the Gospel of John, uh, the writer of the Gospel of John. It's interesting because when he asks Jesus who's going to betray him, he does that after Peter tells him to. Because again, Peter is the leader, but he's the one that leans over and asks. James gets martyred in the book of Acts. He's killed by Herod. That's that group. James and John and Philip. What do we know about Philip? Well, not a lot. We do know he's from Bethsaida, which is where Peter and Andrew are from. They grew up together too, so he knows them. Um, We know that Philip is a Greek name, which is interesting because later on in the Gospel of John, there are some Greeks that want to see Jesus. They come to Philip. And it makes you wonder if Philip kept the Greek name and is known by the Greek name because he has relationships with the Greeks and if it was more natural for the Greeks to come to him. Let us go see Jesus. But some of the stuff that we do get on Philip, I think Philip was, and forgive me if this is what you are, I'll explain. Um, I think Philip was kind of like an engineer. I think he was all about the practical, the down-to-earth, because there's a number of times where Philip just doesn't seem to get the more up-here side of things. So in the beginning, one of the first things we see him do is he comes to his brother, comes to Nathaniel, not his brother, comes to Nathaniel, and he says, we have found Messiah, and he's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's like, kind of laughs at him, like, no. Like, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Are you kidding me? Philip doesn't even seem to, like, even, that doesn't even seem to register. Like, that a Messiah wouldn't come from Nazareth. Philip is the one, when Jesus goes, how do we feed these people? Philip pulls up the books, and he goes, well, eh, there's a lot of people out there, and we can't. <laughs> like, we, we don't have the resources. We can't feed them. I'm sorry. Um, Again, it's very practical. When the Greeks come to Philip, Philip doesn't even know what to do at that point. And I wonder if he's going, I don't know, can like Greeks go to Jesus? Like I, I mean, I am, but I, I," you know what he does? He goes to Andrew. He goes to Andrew and says, hey, they want to see Jesus. And Andrew's like, okay, let's take him. Come on, you can do this, Philip. But he seems very down to earth, very practical a realist about things. That's Philip. Then we hit Bartholomew. We don't know much about him either. Um, In fact, we know hardly nothing. What we do know is he probably is Nathaniel. Um, A lot of these guys have more than one name, And the Gospels put them in similar positions, but use the other name. And so in this case, Philip is always with Bartholomew in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's always with Nathaniel in John. They may be the same person. And if they are, then this is what we know about Bartholomew. 
um, or Nathaniel. He's not a fisherman. He's a scholar. He's looking at the word. He is a, in Jesus' words, a true Israelite. This is a guy who is really looking for what is right. He might have made a good Pharisee because he seems to want to parse things. And his comment to Philip might be a little bit arrogant, a little bit of the, I'm the scholar, you're not, you should know he's not from Nazareth. Let me laugh at you just a little bit. Um, That seems to be Bartholomew or Nathaniel, hardcore Israelite, scholar, learned person, maybe with some pride issues. And then we hit Matthew, the tax collector. So if you thought that Andrew had some issues being the little brother of Peter and being in this particular group, how do you think the true Israelite Nathaniel felt about the tax collector Matthew? And the tax collector is the enemy of the Israelites. Here is a Jew who has decided to work for the enemy and profit off of it. I will take money from my fellow Jews, give it to Rome, and do some extra for myself. You can imagine what a true Israelite would feel about him. And honestly, Matthew is the guy that all of our moms warned us about. Don't hang out with him. He hangs out with the wrong people. They will influence you, and it will take you down a wrong path. And you know what? They're exactly right, because what happens the moment that Matthew is called? He throws a party, and he invites a bunch of other outcasts and sinners and tax collectors to meet Jesus. This is that kind of guy. I mean, he is like, why would you ever pick this dude for the group? There's Matthew. All right, I got to spend a few minutes on this guy. And Thomas. What do we know about Thomas? He's called the twin. Um, He might have a twin, but there's also some translation issues. There's just really not enough to know whether he actually had a twin or not. But we do see him in a couple of scenes that give some insight into this guy. For all of you out there that lean Towards the pessimistic side, Thomas is probably your guy. He seems to have a little bit of pessimism in him. But he has a terrible, in my opinion, title that goes with him, Doubting Thomas. I think that is so unfair to him. It doesn't take the context of the gospel in mind. I mean, here's one of the scenes for Thomas. They have already had their lives threatened. They know the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. And yet there's a feast in Jerusalem. I mean, to go to that feast is like, just here's a target. Come get me. Jesus waits behind. His brothers go ahead, his real brothers. Well, he's with all his disciples, and then at one point he goes, all right, it's time. Let's go. And Thomas stands up and he says, let's go with him and die with him. That's this guy. That's his commitment. Now, I say the pessimism because there's like no opportunity that we're going to escape or anything. It's like, let's just go die. That's probably what's going to happen, so let's do it. Um, But I want you to see the, the faith, the commitment in this man. So he's also the one when Jesus is talking about going away, and he says, but you know the way. You know where I'm going. It's Thomas, and 
I'm picturing a little bit, but just based on what I see of him, I think there's some panic in Thomas. No, like we don't know the way. How can we know it? Like he's realizing the one he said not too long ago, I'm ready to die with you, that one's leaving. And so Thomas is like, no, we don't know where you're going. Like you gotta tell us. You know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. But it's the end scene that gives him doubting Thomas. It's when Thomas says to the others, unless I see the marks, I will never believe. Like, oh man, he's just a doubter. And the thing is, none of them believed until they saw. I mean, and they all got to see already. Of course they're telling him. They've seen it. This is not a knock on Thomas. In fact, I would argue that part of the reason he wasn't there is it was such an emotional thing for him. I mean, the guy who says, let's go die with him, he's given up everything for Jesus. And Jesus died on a cross? Like, it's over. Like, I gotta close that door. I gotta figure out how to move on with my life. And so when he says, I will not believe, if you've ever given something up and then been forced to reopen that door, and you know how hard it is? Because guess what happens when he sees Jesus? You have one of the great proclamations in the scriptures. My Lord and my God. I mean, he is all in again. That's Thomas. All right. A lot of these guys now we know almost nothing about. So you have the next one is James, the son of Alphaeus. You know what we know about him? His dad's name is Alphaeus. That's what we know. <laughs> That's it. Like he doesn't get, he just gets mentions in lists. Um, now, the one thing that might mean is that their family has some influence. Because listing, the, not everybody gets the son of in here. And so to have that part, it might suggest, especially in Luke's list, that people knew Alpheus. But that's it. Then you have Simon, uh, uh, sorry, I'm giving you the wrong Simon here. Simon, who was called the Zealot. Now, that gives you two things. Again, we know almost nothing about him either, other than he's a Zealot. But that's some significant information. Um, this was either the initial beginnings of, it probably wasn't the fully formed party that would come after the destruction of the temple that ultimately would lead to a group of people that would all die at Masada, but this is a group of people who want to overthrow Rome. They are political activists. They are absolutely against what is going on. And I'll tell you what, one of the greatest enemies of the zealots would be who? The tax collector. As bad as Rome is, if you're a fellow Israelite and you're working for them, Boy, I really hate your guts. That's who gets called to be part of this group of 12. Not just the large group. Not like we can, you know, over here we can put our zealots, and then over here, ooh, way over here on this chair, no, way back there, we can put our tax collector. There's only 12 of them. They're supposed to be the leaders. And he gets a zealot named Simon. Then... You have James, son, uh, Judas, son of James. Once again, we don't really know hardly anything about this guy. 
Um, we know that he's the son of James, but we don't know who that is. Um, we do have one thing that he does. He has one comment. And I don't know that we can really get a lot from the comment, but this happens in John. Jesus begins to say, those who obey my commands, I will reveal myself to them. And it's Judas who steps in, and I think the ESV loses something here. He steps in, and John says something about because of what Jesus did, or because of like a change, something about that made Judas, this Judas, feel like there was a change in the plan. And Judas is the one who says, hey, wait, wait, um, why aren't you going to reveal yourself to the world? Like, what happened? But that's all we have. That's just one comment. And there's nothing else. Um, very little about him. Finally, the one that all of you know, Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Everybody knows he is the traitor. He's known from the beginning by Jesus as a traitor. How odd is that? How do you go for three years with a group of 12 people the entire time knowing that one of them is going to be the one that betrays you? Or, and I guess Jesus knew this. I mean, he doesn't explicitly say that. And he was, you know, I, he was their money keeper. He held the money for the group. And according to the Gospel of John, he also took from it for himself. And there's one scene where a lady breaks a bottle of ointment to anoint Jesus, and Judas is ticked off. Judas is like, why would you do that? What a waste. I mean, we could have sold this for a ton of money, 300 denarii. Could you imagine what we could do for the poor? And yet, we know you're also stealing from the money bag. So what would it have done for you? Um, and we know that this guy will, for money, he'll betray Jesus He'll go and get soldiers, but ultimately he will hang himself. I mean, his story is a weird story within all of this, but he's one of them. All right, so those are your guys. Those are your 12. That's the bunch. And I just want to make two points with the bunch. Point number one. Jesus prayed all night. These guys were not secondary choices. They weren't accidents. They weren't like, oh man, we're in a hurry. Just grab those three. We'll check later what their qualifications are. Church, he spent all night praying about who to select. And then he selected these guys. Here's what it reminds me of. Um, so this plastic cup here. Um, I was meeting with Lori on Wednesday. And this is a cup of water from Pearl Cup Coffee. And this is what I was drinking out of. And I took it home because I wasn't done drinking it. And then I just kept refilling it. And I've been drinking from this plastic cup every day since Wednesday. Like multiple times. Just keep refilling this cup. And it was either Friday or yesterday. Aaron's like, are you still drinking from that plastic cup? <laughs> you know we have like glass cups and ceramic cups and plastic cups. I mean, we have, a lot of, we have lots of cups in our cupboard that we bought from the store that are real cups. And you're allowed to use them. I give you permission. <laughs> like, I chose this cup, even though it was a plastic cup, because you know what? It just felt right. Like, it fits well in my hand. Eventually, I'll have to get rid of it. <laughs> but right now, this is my cup. 
even though it's not maybe as good as some of the other cups. Jesus chose those guys as they are with all of their lack of qualifications, all of their interpersonal issues, family, no family. Jesus chose those guys. They would be the ones that would turn the world upside down. They seem about as good as this plastic cup. (laughs) But you know what? What Jesus was able to do with those men as they are is so incredible and so encouraging and so challenging because he took all their diverse personalities, he took all their diverse politics, all their diverse societal things, all their diverse economic things, everything that would have divided them, and he pulled them together to change the world. And I think it's because of one thing, one thing that we still need to hear today. Because here's the thing, if you belong to Jesus, it is not an accident, it is not a secondary choice, it is not because he just needed somebody and went, I'll take that one, we'll check it out later. You were chosen as you are. But the one thing that brings us all together is him as our perfect first and foremost identity above everything else. So that whatever the politics are, whatever the background is, whatever the economics are, whatever the personalities are, they are secondary to following him. Do you remember this scene? He said to his disciples, all men will know that you are my disciples by this. If you love one another in the way I've loved you. That thing took, that passage right there took on a whole new meaning for me after studying these 12 guys. Because it's one thing to take a group of 12 people who are alike, who share interests, who are similar and say, now if you guys love each other, you'll reflect me. It's a wholly other thing to take those 12 men Because guess what? If they actually love each other, past all their stuff, they really would be showing something supernatural. They would be showing the kind of love Jesus has. Because let me tell you this. However far away you are from anybody in this room, whether you are talking about what you believe or what you think or what you stand for or how you're made or anything else, as far away as you are from there, Jesus is further away from you in that way. And yet, he loves you perfectly and calls you into fellowship with him. After 9-11, there was an unprecedented connection in in our country. I mean, across religions, across politics, everything, people were coming together. Ridiculous things were happening. I think a particular Navy veteran got it so well. Matt Kinesvogel, a Navy veteran stationed in Saudi Arabia on 9-11, said he returned home a few months later to a country awash in red, white, and blue. People were actually nice to one another, he said. It didn't matter what color you were on the outside, 
you were an American, and that's all that mattered. If you replace that with you are a Christian, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and that is all that should matter. And it should be bigger than every difference we have with one another. Because that is what it means to love one another as I have loved you. No matter how different or how sinful you were related to Christ, he still loved you. And he's saying, because of me, I want you to love everybody else in that same way. I had one more point, but I'll write about it because it's late. But I do want to finish the letter that the fictitious management company sent because um, I think you'll get it a little better now. After saying uh, they lacked managerial ability and proven capability, it continues this way. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew had been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Business Bureau, Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered high score on the manic depressive scale. And one of the candidates, however, just one of them, he shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well. He has a keen business mind. He has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. And we wish you every success in your new venture. If I could just get two things across today. These were real people. They had real personalities. They had real strengths and weaknesses. Um, and they were kind of a mess when thrown together. And yet, when Jesus is our primary focus... When we identify, when I say, I am a Christian first, and second, I'm a husband, I'm a friend, I'm a father, I'm a church leader, I'm a neighbor, I am um, introverted, I am dominating, um, I lead, and sometimes I lead in bad ways, I mean, all these other things that are part of me, but I'm a Christian first. Jesus is first, then I can interpret everything else in light of that. And I can imagine this scene. I can imagine Simon the Zealot saying to Matthew the tax collector, I am so against what you have done. I don't even know how you live with yourself, but Jesus called you. I don't know what that's about, but you're my brother now. And we're going to serve Jesus together. And we may get in some fights because you may do some things I don't like and I'm gonna do some things you may not like either. And we may call each other on some stuff, but you know what? We are in this together because we're in this for Jesus and he's first. 
Not me being a zealot and not you being a tax collector. That is what it means to be unified in Christ for every one of us. And what I know about this room is we're a, we're a room full of a lot of differences. We have a lot of differences in our politics, our economics, backgrounds, our educations, our personalities. But church, if Jesus can't get us past those things, we're not doing this Jesus thing right. Because that's what he's called us to. And the only way he ever said, this is how you will know my disciples, is by their love for each other. We need to love each other past all the stuff. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you led your son to choose this strange, diverse group of people to be leaders. Lord, that we might understand that every one of us has a place. We have a place in your kingdom. We have a place in serving you. And Lord, thank you that this group, other than Judas Iscariot, they came together and they served the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God beyond their differences. Lord, let us be those people, unified in Christ, who died and rose again, that we might be those people. 